0: Please turn in your Bibles to 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 1. So we continue to make our way through this letter bit by bit, getting a little bit more into the meat of the letter. We finished the introduction portion a few weeks ago with 1 through 7. Jason began really the exhortation section starting in verse 8 last week, talking about Paul's command to Timothy. To not be ashamed of the gospel message or the gospel minister, but to suffer for God, suffer for the gospel's sake, and now Paul is giving us the gospel, really that's worthy of suffering for. That's what we have tonight. So 2 Timothy chapter 1, and we will read verses 8 through 10, but our focus tonight will just be 9 and 10. Let me remind you, brothers and sisters, this is the word of our living and holy God. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus, before the ages began and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we give thanks for your word for the privilege of hearing it once again today, and we also give thanks as we remember the finished work of your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray as we study your word tonight that your spirit would illumine our minds so that we would understand your word and would help us to find great hope and peace in the resurrection to come when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, and death is swallowed up in the glorious victory of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I pray this in his name and for his sake. Amen. Well, in 155 AD, in a town called Smyrna, there lived a man named Polycarp. I know that name may not sound familiar to many of us, But that name was very familiar to most Christians in the early church. Some because they knew that Polycarp, this pastor, this bishop, was actually trained by the Apostle John himself. Um, So he was very well educated and and knew the gospel well. But most people knew him probably because of his pretty famous death and martyrdom. Because you see, Polycarp lived in a time where... It was a terrible time for Christians, where thousands of Christians were being brutally murdered by the Roman Empire. Some of them were burned at the stake, as Polycarp was. Some were stabbed, dismembered. Others, even right before Polycarp, they ended this about, his, about this time, but before him, they were fed to lions in the Colosseum. I'm sure many of you have heard of that, just to entertain the, the Roman citizens. Well, when Polycarp was an old man, he was arrested... Arrested for being a Christian, for stirring up people against the Roman Empire, which really just meant that he was calling people to repent and trust in Jesus and not Rome and and believe that the Roman Emperor was God. And so Polycarp was arrested, and he was brought into an arena. But actually, when Polycarp was arrested, even before that, he had a dream. He didn't put up a fight when he was arrested because he had a dream the night before that he would be burned alive, and God would tell him that you need to play the man. And so when Polycarp was arrested, he went calmly and peaceably, and he was brought into this arena with Jews and Roman citizens and, uh, before the Roman proconsul. And the Roman proconsul didn't originally want to execute this man. He was an old man, and he didn't want to make him a hero, and so he kind of offered him a deal. So Polycarp, all you have to do to make all of this go away is say Caesar is Lord, and to say away with the atheists. That was a big deal because you see, back then, Christians were considered atheists because they would not bow the knee to the Roman emperor as God, admit he was an atheist. And so Polycarp actually agreed and he said, all right, fine. And he motioned towards the crowd and said, away with the atheists. As you can imagine, didn't make people very happy. Um, the Roman proconsul got really angry. He said, don't you realize I can burn you at the stake? And Polycarp responded, be that as it may. Your fire will last no more than an hour, and then it will be quenched. But the fire that you face right now, under God's judgment, will never go out. And with that, they decided to kill him on the spot. And they tied him to the stake, lit the fire underneath him, and legend actually has it that the strong wind blew up the flames around him so they wouldn't touch him. Just went around him, and the executioner got angry and took out a sword and stabbed Polycarp. And the the blood spilled out and almost put out the fire, as what the legend says. Just, it's an incredible story, isn't it? Incredible, inspiring in so many ways. But I don't know about you, when I hear stories like that, and there are many of them, I think, what, what drove this man to be this bold, to go to his death like this? What did he believe about God, that he could persevere in faith and live like this? Well, Paul essentially tells us in this passage Really, it's it's very basic, though. Paul basically says the gospel is what drives us to live like this. Our trust in the God of the gospel and the truth of the gospel is how we can persevere in faith. More specifically, Paul says in this passage, he actually calls us and calls Timothy to suffer for the God who has graciously and eternally saved us. Those are the truths that Paul presses on, God's gracious, sovereign salvation, and the wonderful gift of eternal life in Christ. And so as we go through this passage, it's just a few verses, but there's so much packed into this kind of creed-like hymn. Uh, I want to break it down into three sections. So first, the gospel of salvation. The gospel of salvation at the beginning of verse 9, we talk about what we're saved from and saved to. Then the gospel of sovereign grace which is at the end of verse 9 and on into 10, and then the gospel of immortality. I'm not saying those are separate gospels, by the way. Those are overlapping in many ways, as we'll see. But they're broken down into that so we can kind of walk our way through. So the gospel of salvation, which is in verse 9, but we need to go back to verse 8 to understand why Paul is even talking about it. So go to verse 8 again with me. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, don't be ashamed of the gospel, the gospel message, nor of me, his prisoner, the gospel minister. But share in suffering for the gospel, Timothy. How? By the power of God. And that little phrase, the power of God, is what sets Paul off into this next section. You understand what Paul is saying here. He's saying, yes, Timothy, the church has fallen on very tough times. I'm in prison. It looks like I'm not going to make this out alive. I'm not going to survive this. And I know there's problems in the church. It's shameful just to associate with me. Even more shameful in some ways to preach the message that put me in prison. But Paul's saying, Timothy, persevere. Don't throw in the towel. Join me actually in suffering. Why? Because the power of God will be displayed through you as it is in me. And I love this. It's almost as if Paul can't even talk about the power of God and the gospel without just exploding into praise and doxology, which is what he does here. It's almost as if he's saying, Timothy, can you believe this? Can you believe this gospel, this God that we serve, this gospel message that we get to preach? Why would anyone ever walk away from this God when this is all he's done for us? And so that's what Paul is saying here. that's why Paul says this. So he begins that praise in verse 9. With the gospel of salvation, what we're saved from and then what we're saved to. So look at verse 9. Still speaking about God, he says, Who saved us and called us to a holy calling. Now let's focus on that first part there. Who saved us. What does he mean by that? What are we saved from? And we know the simple Sunday school answer is we're saved from sin, right? And that's absolutely right. But the Bible actually gets more descriptive than that. It unpacks it by saying, well, we're saved from the penalty of sin and also the power of sin. See, we need to remember we are born into this world fallen in Adam. That is our sinful fallen nature. And we actually are sinners not just by nature, but also by practice, aren't we? Because we follow in Adam's footsteps. We follow in the sin that he committed. And so that means we are all guilty before God. We all deserve God's just and holy wrath. And the way that we receive that wrath is death. Death is the penalty for sin. It's the consequence of sin. Both physical death, right? Romans 6 verse 23, For the wages of sin is death. But not just physical death, but even spiritual death, is the penalty of sin. Listen to Ephesians chapter two, verse one. We know this verse, right? You were dead, dead in your trespasses and sin, in which you once walked. Now, have you have you thought about this verse carefully? How can someone be dead and walking? Right? It doesn't make any sense. Dead people don't do anything. They don't even breathe. Right? There's no walking going on. So in what sense are they both dead, but they're still walking? Well, Paul tells us, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So the deadness Paul is referring to here is spiritual death, dead to the things of God and dead to God himself, walking as sons of disobedience, really under the authority and walking in step with Satan himself. That's the spiritual deadness we're talking about here. So the Bible says we are completely dead, completely, not not partially dead, right? like princess bride right mostly dead or anything like that but we're completely dead we face the grave because of our sin we face hell spiritual darkness because of our sin that is the devastating situation that sin has put us in but believe it or not there's more sin also has a corrupting power over us as well doesn't it we talked about that last week when i preached on titus chapter 3 verse 3 listen to this verse again For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. This is a terribly sad verse because we read this and we should think this is not what we were created to be. We were made in the image of God. To reflect his good character and his glory to the world. But we have become, as the human race, morally corrupt. We call good evil and evil good. And you know, you can look out in the world and most people don't even know the difference. They're consumed by hatred. Slaves to sinful passions. This is the corrupting power that sin has over us. But praise be to God. Jesus came to save us from all, all sin's corruption. Jesus came and broke the power of sin by living perfectly in our place, obeying God's law where we failed. He came to pay the penalty of sin on the cross, taking the wrath of God that we deserve, stepping in the place of the guilty so that all of God's wrath is quenched on him. And he rose from the grave, proving proving that he completely atoned for our sin. It's paid in full. So when we trust in Christ, knowing he's been risen from the dead, vindicated by the Spirit, we know we are freed from the guilt of sin, the penalty of sin, the power of sin. And one day we will also be free from the presence of sin as well when our Lord returns and frees us completely from sin for all eternity. Jesus summarizes this beautifully in John 5, verse 24. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. Well, what does that mean? He does not come into judgment, the penalty of sin, but has passed from death to life. The power of sin is broken as well. But that's just what we are saved from, by the way. What are we actually saved to? It doesn't just free us, let us start over. No, we're saved to something. Our lives should look differently if we're saved. And we see that in verse 9 as well. Who saved us and called us to a holy calling. I think this is one of those things we get wrong as Christians a lot. We like to think, well, God has essentially made sinners innocent. He just brought us right back to the garden and says, all right, you really messed up that first shot. I'm going to give you a second shot now. Don't mess this one up. Learn from your mistakes and get it right. You just, I'm going to wipe the slate clean. No, that's not the gospel. It's not that he's made sinners innocent. He's turned sinners into saints. Transformed us. Took dead people and made us alive. Made us new creations in Christ. We're not just called out of sin. We're also called into holiness. Not holiness in our own strength, but holiness by the power of the Spirit. And this would not be a foreign concept for Timothy or for the Ephesian church because Paul talks about this so much in the, the book of Ephesians. Listen to what he says in Ephesians 1.3. God chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Why? So that we might be holy and blameless before him. That's why we were saved. In fact, that's why God, at our conversion, gives us the Holy Spirit, seals us with the Holy Spirit, Ephesians 1.13. And that Spirit causes Christ to dwell in our hearts by faith, Ephesians 3.17. Why? Why are we sealed with the Spirit? Why do we have the Holy Spirit? Because the Spirit renews our minds and helps us put on the new self, which is Christ, Created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. That's Ephesians 4, verse 23 through 24. This is the new life we have in Christ now. So much better than just being free from sin. The power of sin is broken. That means we're not just called into holiness. We are called into holiness, but we're actually enabled to be holy. You believe that? We actually get to be holy. We couldn't do that apart from Christ. And we're not perfectly holy yet. We're still being sanctified and being saved. And so we are repentantly holy now. And one day we will be perfectly holy. Also by the power of the Spirit, right? When we raise from the dead. Now that brings us to a really really important question here. Which I think is what Paul is dealing with next. If I'm called to be holy, and I'm supposed to walk in holiness, and I'm enabled to walk in holiness... Well, does that mean that my holiness now earns God's grace? Or does that even mean what's worse is that if I cease to be holy or if I struggle in holiness down the line, I can lose God's grace? Well, that's where the second point really helps us when Paul presses in. We've seen the gospel of salvation. Now let's look at the gospel of sovereign grace. The gospel of sovereign grace. Right in verse 9, towards the middle there, when he says, Not... Because of our works. Now why is Paul telling Timothy this? Timothy knows this. Paul clearly taught this in Ephesians. So Timothy knows what's going on here. Does Timothy really think that he can take on Rome or Nero or fix all the problems in the church by his own works? Well no, probably not. But also yes, in some ways. Because his fear and his shame that Paul is pushing him on might say otherwise. You see, Timothy can be just like us. When a big problem falls in our lap, when we're confronted with difficulties in this world, what's usually our sinful instinct? Lord, I can't do this. This is too much for me. I'm not strong enough. I'm not smart enough or determined enough. I'm thankful for Christ and all he's done, all that he's saved me to, but I I feel like I'm on my own now. Like, I've got started, now I have to finish this on my own, and I I can't do this. And that might be a bit of what Timothy's going to here. And I'm sure we can relate to that here, right? And see, there's some truth to this, isn't there? God does call us to do things that are impossible for us to do, apart from Christ. And that last part is very important. Because we are never called to serve God in and of our own strength. And we're never alone. So Paul reminds Timothy here to not be ashamed. It reminds him of the sovereign grace of God from the beginning so he can trust that this sovereign grace that he was given from the beginning will also sustain him through the ministry and through the rest of his life. That's why Paul is pressing on this. So first, in a negative way, Paul says you're not saved by works. Why not? Why aren't we saved by works? because we have none. <laughs> right? We have none. Not, you remember Romans 3. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. No, not even one. And just in case we have any objections, it says, no, 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 my grandmother or my, whoever, Paul says, no. All have sinned. All have sinned. And fallen short of the glory of God. You realize if this is really who we are, if the Bible says this and this is true, it is impossible to earn salvation by our works. Even our best works, on our best day, done with the most pure intentions of our lives, are still filthy rags to our God. Because they're still corrupted by our sin. We're still a mess, a sinful mess. So our best offering to God is worthless. Worthless apart from Christ. This reminds me of the call-out, actually, we do at Providence a lot. And we have some Providence kids here. See if you even remember this, this call out's one of my favorites, actually. If it's wrong, what? Go make it right. There. The teacher, Megan, good job. You should probably know that one, yes. If it's wrong, go make it right. Hopefully the kids remember that as well. It's such a good, good motto, and good way to live, but see, here's the thing. We know it's wrong with us and God. We know we have a sin problem, very, very clearly seen in Scripture, but we don't have the ability to make it right. We have nothing, nothing to offer God. Or we can't fix our sin problem. The worst thing that happens when we do try to make it right, we just expose how much broken we really are, how morally depraved we really are. And so Paul's right in Romans 3 again. He says, for by the works of the law, no human being can be justified in his sight. And some might even say, well, wait a minute, doesn't God choose us? Doesn't he look down the the corridors of time and say, I'm going to pick them because they would choose me in the future? No, absolutely not. And Paul makes that abundantly clear in this next verse. We are saved by God's sovereign grace and purpose. Look at verse 9 again, right in the middle again. Not because of our works, but how? But because of his own purpose and grace. And listen to this, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Literally, you might remember this when Chad preached it. Those words are before times eternal. God gave you grace before you existed. That's, That's hard to even process, isn't it? Not just before you were good or had done anything good or bad. Before you were you, God gave you grace. God planned to give you grace. So his grace is not dependent on anything in us. It is completely dependent on his sovereign will and purpose alone. And we know this is this glorious doctrine of predestination, don't we? Which again, Paul talks to the Ephesian church about in Ephesians chapter 1. Listen to this. says, he, God, chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. According to what? According to his purpose and will and to the praise of his glorious grace. God's the one that decided to give us grace and he did it for his own glory. How do we know though that this This grace that was given to us before times eternal is really ours then. Well, we know that because of Christ and His appearing. Look at verse 10. And which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus. Now, pay attention to this verse. What exactly has been manifested? It sounds like a thing, right, but it's really a person. The grace of God before time, that we were given before time's eternal, has been manifested. So Paul is kind of saying here that invisible grace, at least to us, is now being made visible in Christ. That grace appeared in time and space and history in Jesus. He is the grace of God that we so desperately need. And he's also the grace of God we've been promised, hasn't he? God may have decided to do that long ago, but he's also promised to us that he would send the Messiah. In Genesis 3:15 to come and crush the head of Satan forever. And then what do we see when Jesus shows up? 1 John chapter 1 verse 8 says that the one that Jesus appeared to destroy the work of the devil. He came to crush Satan, free us from the bondage of sin. That's the grace of God appeared in Jesus Christ. That leads us to our third point. Seeing the gospel of salvation, the gospel of sovereign grace. Let's look lastly at the gospel of immortality, the gospel of eternal life, the good news of eternal life, which is our hope beyond the grave. And it's in verse 10 again. And notice, please, as we look through this, there's kind of this saved from and saved to picture again in verse 10. Still talking about Christ, he says, who abolished death, destroyed death. Death. Notice, past tense there. It's a done deal. Death is, is through. But he didn't just destroy it. He also brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. See, he didn't just save us from physical and spiritual death, eternal torment in hell, and the penalty of sin. He also saved us too, in a way, immortality, eternal life in him. In other words, when Christ gives us new life, it's not just another life. It's not reincarnation. It's not more of, of just time under this sun, walking in fallen humanity. No, it's a newness of life. Eternal life in Christ. Paul describes this beautifully in 1 Corinthians 15. The whole chapter, really. And it's, I'm giving you homework. Go and read that tonight because it's great. But let me just read a couple verses about the resurrected state, about the immortality that's promised here verses 53 through 55. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and the mortal body must also put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, and listen, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? see a great hope that we have in Christ is we have victory over the grave over hell eternal torment we have victory over physical death and spiritual death that grace has gone as far as the curse is found isn't it well then some of us might still say and rightly think that well wait a minute then why do we still die if he's destroyed death then why do I still go to funerals I still mourn, and it's still a terrible thing when my loved ones pass away. Well, when Paul says he's abolished death here, the word there is actually, the idea is like he's brought it to nothing. Or my favorite translation of it is he's put it out of commission. Put it out of commission, rendered it it useless. Maybe think of a car or a truck that has no engine in it. My dad has one of these at his house. It's been sitting there for like 30 years, right? An engine just gone. So you see the car there. It is still a car, isn't it? It's still there, but it's useless. It's out of commission. It has no effectiveness at all. That's the idea here with death. Yes, there's still death in this world. Yes, we still have enemies. Satan, sin, and death. But they've been put out of commission by Christ. Abolished. Rendered useless. It's actually the same word used here in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14, which says Christ partook of flesh and blood. He became man for us in order that through death he might destroy, abolish, or put out a commission the one who has the power of death, and that is the devil. So it's not like Satan, sin, and death are just gone. They will be one day. But right now, The sting is taken away. Their victory is gone. So for saints, for those that trust in Christ, the last word in our life isn't death and judgment, which we deserve. The last word for us is eternal life, newness of life in Christ. I can't imagine what what a comfort this must have been for Timothy who is living in the face of death, walking in Paul's footsteps. I would imagine even Paul himself would be encouraged by this theology, reminding himself of the life after death as he's trying to encourage Timothy. Brothers and sisters, even though we're not in a jail cell somewhere, this is our great hope at the end of the day, isn't it? See, our, our hope is not in avoiding death or postponing death or playing it safe in ministry. By not preaching the gospel and sparing ourselves some heartache or not faithfully walking with the Lord. No, our hope, our hope in this world is life after this world. It's eternal life in Christ. And brothers and sisters, Paul says that life isn't even worth comparing to the troubles and the hardships in this world. See, it was this hope that helped Polycarp play the man when he was burned at the stake. So long ago, 155 AD. And it was also the same hope that was on display nearly 1,400 years later at Oxford, when two English bishops, leaders in the church, were also burned at the stake, also called to recant, to deny Jesus, and they would not. So these two men, Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley, they were sentenced to death and burned at the stake. And when the fires were lit below this man's feet, Hugh Latimer turned to his brother, fellow pastor, and he told him, be of good comfort, Mr. Ridley, and play the man. He quotes Polycarp, and then he says this, We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as shall never be put out. This is what martyrdom even means is to testify, isn't it? Testifying even through death to the hope that they have beyond the grave. See, brothers and sisters, this is what drives us to live holy lives, to preach the gospel, even when we face terrible consequences for it. We can and should be faithful. Why? Because we know God has graciously and sovereignly saved us. And we know God will raise us to eternal life. That's our hope. Let's pray that God would help us trust him for it. Lord, thank you for your word. Thankful th- for this eternal message of hope. God, help us to trust you. Pray that your spirit would work in our hearts to, to love your word and delight in these truths and to take steps of faith to be doers of your word. Give us the grace, Lord, that we might have words of faith and, uh, Lord, that we would preach the gospel boldly to our friends and family and neighbors and even to the ends of the earth. Lord, that we would step bravely into suffering even knowing that nothing can happen to us because we will be raised from the dead one day that we will have newness of life in christ let that be our hope lord we pray in jesus name amen